continuing my sermon series, looking at the life of Martin Luther. I got a great reaction last week as I told the story of his marriage and his wife, Katarina, who, uh, just a fascinating story. If you missed last week's sermon, uh, uh, you, you missed one that a lot of people were really interested and fascinated in. So I uh, encourage you to go back and pick that one up or any of these if you were missing information's in the bulletin. We're doing this series because on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this month, Martin Luther hung a piece of paper listing 95 theses against the sale of indulgences on the door at the church at Wittenberg. This moment was the spark that ignited the Reformation and continues to have a huge impact on our lives to this very day. And next week, I'm going to really talk about how it has impacted so much of our lives in ways that every day it touches you, you don't even seem to realize. And I didn't realize until I really researched this. But today I want to look at Martin Luther's leadership. What did Martin Luther do that helped this movement from being squashed? After all, Martin Luther was not the first to call for reform, and he was not the first to make some of these same accusations against the church of his day. Nearly 200 years earlier, in the 1300s, a man named John Wycliffe had some of Luther's same arguments in England. He complained against the privilege of clergy, translated the Bible into Middle English, and spoke out against the Pope. He was resisted, and his followers were persecuted. After his death, he was declared a heretic and was excommunicated. And we don't seem to think about that much, like, oh, you got kicked out of the church, just go to another one. But the belief in that day was the only way to be saved was through the church. So to be excommunicated was not just to be kicked out of the church. It was to be kicked out of heaven. You had no access to God in eternity. Overlapping some with Wycliffe and more directly influential to Luther was the work of a man named John Huss. He was a Czech priest who eventually came to Germany. He questioned the authority of the Pope, the morality of the clergy, the sale of indulgences and the crusades. Huss was tried as a heretic and was burned at the stake in 1415. That's 102 years before Martin Luther and his 95 Theses. At his death, Huss was given one last chance to recant, one last chance to say that he didn't believe the stuff he had written down. He said this, God is my witness that the things charged against me I never preached. And the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, drawing upon the sayings and positions of the holy doctors, I am ready to die today. Huss had this huge conviction, and and, um, Luther is accused in a lot of his writings of being influenced by Huss, and he confesses that he appreciated the works of Huss. But what you see is that the church at at that time were experts on squashing down these kind of of rebellions and these kinds of calls for reform and these kinds of questions. So why is it that Martin Luther's movement continues and continues to this day while all these other movements continually get squashed down? And and I'm, I'm especially interested in this. Not just because the system was made to resist and change and consolidate power, But I'm interested in the world in which Luther lived. 
It was a dark world full of poverty and plague. People died, lost their children, people were mistreated. It was a time of fear and superstition. Life was scary. People worried about death. People talked about demons out to get them because with the plague, you didn't know how you got it. You just sort of got it. There was threat of war from the Turks in the West as well as feuds closer to home. There was a distrust in government. The government was this big empire and the question was, were these princes and electors really out for our good or just for their own good? If they were out for our good, why is it that the wealthy seem to get wealthy and the poor seem to remain poor? The church was in a position of privilege. They had been the dominant figure in Europe for a thousand years. The Pope even got to pick the empire, the emperor. Okay, the Pope got to pick the emperor. So you have this, this church that has the position of power and dominance and had really lost sight of the gospel and its mission in the world. There's a move away from scripture. The rules and practices no longer resemble biblical teaching. And suddenly there's this new technology called the printing press where you can print books and spread it all over the place. And people were hungry for new knowledge. There were huge shifts going on in the way people think. They were becoming enlightened. More knowledge, more facts. Think about our world today. We seem to me to be in an increasingly dark world, filled with poverty and inequality. In fact, cancer seems to me to feel very much like a plague, a slow-moving plague that happens among us. People are afraid. And they're superstitious. I hear language of being jinxed, people wondering whether they deserve or don't deserve something, all kinds of fascination and vampires and werewolves. We live in a very superstitious world that seems hard for some of us to understand because it's so different. If you don't think we feel the threat of war, turn on the news, right? North Korea and other places seem very much like a threat of the Turks from the East did in Luther's day. Maybe we can't identify with this distrust of the government, right? No, I think a lot of us feel that. Is the government really for us or not? Or are they sort of um, lifelong politicians that are out for their own good? And what about this idea that the church has gotten kind of lazy in its position of power and centrality in the culture? Has the church lost its sense of mission and purpose and gospel? I certainly think we have moved away from the scriptures. I certainly think that some of the discussions we have, and so, the scriptures don't seem to be that important, even in the church. And I don't think there's been a change in technology like we've seen in the last 20 years ever in the history of the world. You think the printing press could get information out. Now we've got internet, and we've got computers, and we have access to all this information. Whatever Luther did in his times to help his movement going, I think we live in a time right now that needs reformation more than ever. And so let's think about what he did to make this reformation keep going. First of all, I think Luther really did benefit from the circumstances around him. People wanted change. They were discontent, frustrated, asking questions. All their discontent needed was a little bit of a spark, and Luther was able to give them that. And he didn't say anything really new, Luther didn't. He said things that Huss and others had said before him, but the timing was different. 
It was a world ready for change, crying out for something to be different, even if they didn't know what it was. The technology for Luther was huge. For Huss and for Wycliffe, if they wanted to get their word out, they had to actually have people come and hear them. Or they could write letters, or people could write letters for them. But everything had to be handwritten. So a movement could only go so far. But when Luther starts writing, and when he writes his 95 theses, they can be printed. And what happens in Europe is there's this, this network of printing presses. So you would print a book in Wittenberg, or you could print the 95 Theses in Wittenberg, and then a copy could be taken to the next town to be printed there, and royalty sent back, and then printed to, in the next town. And all of a sudden you had bookstores. You never had bookstores before because you never had books. Okay? But all of a sudden these things start happening in Europe called bookstores. And people could go and could buy books relatively inexpensively. And Luther was smart about this, by the way. Luther had some of the best-looking books of his time. There was an artist came to live in Wittenberg called, named Cranach. And Cranach was uh, able to, uh, with his art, really make the books beautiful. And they used to use woodcuts. So what they would do is carve into a page um, so that when you would press that woodcut down on the paper, you could get beautiful drawings and stuff. This, this was brand new in the printing press. Most printing press was just all words, but now all of a sudden we're getting really pretty, beautiful books. You, when you go into a bookstore today, you're going to see that, right? You're going to see books with nice covers sitting there begging you to read them. Martin Luther started a lot of that. Um, his ideas were able to get out because of this new technology. Luther also had access to information, unprecedented access to the Bible. Suddenly he could read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew and start to translate it for himself, not just into Latin. This is huge when he goes to make a German Bible. He's got all these source materials to read from. He also suddenly gets access, for the first time in, in, in history, he gets access to what the early church looked like. So there are all these early Christians that we call them the early church fathers because they are primarily men. There are some, some women in there too that wrote about what the Christian faith was like from the time of the disciples uh, really all the way through. And suddenly because of the printing press, Luther gets to look back and say, oh, what did Christianity look like before all this other stuff was going on? Um, this is kind of an amazing thing to me because Christianity is doing the same thing right now. Um, when my dad was in seminary, he primarily learned psychology. My dad, when he was in seminary, learned Freud and he learned uh, how to do psychological stuff. When, when I went to seminary, I, I read a lot of the church fathers. I read a lot of the early church. I read a lot of Martin Luther and John Calvin. I went back and started to look at what Christianity looked like before it was so modern, before it was so influenced by the Enlightenment. And that's what happens to Luther. He gets to all of a sudden go back and see what did the church look like before the Dark Ages? Was, is the church that we have now the same as the church that was earlier? And the answer always is no. The church always changes to fit its time. And sometimes it gets sort of stuck in a time and we need to go back and see what it was like beforehand. That happened to Luther. It's happening to us too. So Luther benefits from all these circumstances. I mean, you can see kind of this perfect storm that God swirled around Luther where his words could get out there and the world was ready for his words in a way that Huss and Wycliffe didn't have, although they seemed to have primed the pump for him a little bit. But Luther also did some very, very good things. 
First of all, he capitalized on these circumstances. He wrote a lot of books. And he wrote a lot of good books, and he made them really pretty, and he sent them all over the place. And he capitalized on the technology of his day. Not only that, many people were started trying to print books. And there were many opponents of Luther that tried to print books, but often they were printed in Latin. And most people couldn't read Latin. The real sword of Martin Luther is that he wrote in German. He wrote in German. So that he wasn't writing for the academics, he was writing for the common person. That common person that really, really wanted to see change and was upset, Luther wrote for that person. And because of that, the Catholic Church couldn't just come in and squash Luther's movement because everybody was excited about it and everybody was on board with it. By the time the church really decided to react to Luther, they would have had to kill half of Germany and a number of people in other parts of Europe to stop this movement. And had they killed Luther, they probably would have made a martyr out of him and only added fuel to the fire. That was Luther's key. Luther also did the hard work of giving the movement deep roots. First of all, Luther was a man of prayer. He really was. He prayed all the time. He had certain prayers he liked to pray throughout the day. He's even quoted as one time saying, I have a really busy and important day today. I better spend an extra hour in prayer this morning. Now time out. Do you spend an hour in prayer in the morning? Luther did. And when he had a really busy day, when, when, when we would have a tendency to say, oh, I got no time for prayer today. I got a really busy day. Luther's response was, oh, I better pray an extra hour. Can you imagine this? You want to know how he was able to do all the stuff he was able to do? It wasn't by his own power. He gave prayer, uh, gave roots to the movement by really developing prayer. He also was really Bible-based. He wanted to take everything in the movement, he wanted to put through the lens of Scripture. He took it back to the roots of God's Word. And he, he felt so strongly about that that he spent time translating the New Testament into German so that people could have it. See, he didn't just want the roots to be him. He thought that was part of the problem of the church of his day. They held on to the roots. They held on to the teaching. He said, no, no, no. we got to have a Bible that everybody can read and everybody can have access to. Another thing he did was set up, kept up pastoral care. He, he, even though he was doing this movement, remained a pastor through the whole thing. He continued to preach. He continued to care for the people. He continued to do communion for his church. And he stayed grounded in the actual lives of people. He didn't just get all heady. He stayed in their lives. The other thing that Luther really did, and this is, this is underestimated about Luther, I think, is he created a great soundtrack for his movement. A great soundtrack. He believed in hymns. He rewrote a lot of hymns, picked up a lot of songs. He wanted new music to accompany the theology that he was preaching. We're gonna, the rest of today, we're going to sing a couple of his songs. Um, the next song we're going to sing is an Advent hymn. You're not going to know it, but you'll deal with it. It'll be okay. Um, it's, a Luther, it's one of Luther's songs. And then we're going to sing again. We sang it a couple weeks ago, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's the one that really everybody knows. But he wrote a lot of hymns. And he encouraged a lot of hymn writing because the soundtrack is important. Okay, the music that you play in the back of... Every great movie has a great soundtrack. Okay, 
Every great movement has a great soundtrack too. And he took seriously the music that helped keep the theology going. Now Luther also did some really practical things. He, he pulled around him a great team, a number of really good people that he invested his time into. He developed those people and he would often have conversations in the evenings at what was called the Black Cloister, which was this basically hostel that he and his wife ran. Uh, some of his works there can be found in a book called Table Talk, which is just different people wrote down some of their conversations that they had with Martin Luther over beers in the evenings. Okay, Martin Luther just, he, he invested time and energy in answering people's questions and teaching and in developing other leaders. He also really benefited other people. When he got to Wittenberg, this little, is a little town with this little university, really not known in the world very much. By the time he dies, Wittenberg is a huge, sprawling city. Really because of him. He had, they had one little printing press. They ended up having a giant printing press come in. They ended up having all kinds of people be able to stay there. All kinds of people move there. He benefited the whole town. You understand? All the business people loved him. Whether they agreed with him or not, they loved him because he brought all kinds of business to the community. He brought all kinds of life to the community. Wittenberg grew. Luther also didn't get too revolutionary. There was a lot of people that wanted to take his movement, his ideas, and, and really like burn down churches and break glass. And there were, there were people in Germany who killed priests and nuns because they felt like they had been lied to over the years. And were destroying crucifixes and whatever else they could get their hands on because they, they were angry, they were outraged. Soon after Luther's work, there starts what calls, what's called the Peasants' War. And the Peasants' War really used Luther's theology as an excuse for this rebellion they wanted to have. And if Luther had, had gone with that and really encouraged rebellion, it, it would have been really bad. But Luther didn't do that. And because he didn't do that, because he spoke out against those people that were causing such violent uprisings, um, he was able to keep, um, keep connected with sort of the leadership of the country and have an influence on the princes and those that were in important decisions. So even though Luther had a chance to make this big movement and this big rebellion, he held to his convictions. And once Luther said he believed it, or he wrote it down, he did not turn back. There was not a lot of rethinking for Luther. He would think, he would think, he would think, and when he would respond, it was well thought out, and he didn't back down. Here's one of his quotes. Resolved that every man should live to the glory of God. Resolved, second, that whatever others do, that whether others do this or not, I will. That was Luther. Luther, I'm sure he could be bullheaded, right? I'm sure it was not easy to be married to or to be friends with or to be colleagues with. Because, man, once he thought he was right, he was going to drive. But, um, but it takes that kind of conviction to make a movement. And he had it. Now, I, I have a, a ton of respect for Luther. I, uh, I've really enjoyed doing all the research for this. I bought a little stuff, Luther. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan, right? But, but I also got to be fair. Luther was not a perfect guy. He really could be harsh, probably too harsh. He could be cruel. Um, in those days, there weren't denominations. So when it wasn't like, um, okay, I'm not happy at this church. I'll just go start another church. 
That wasn't the understanding of his day. In Luther's mind, and he, he really comes out of the dark ages, there's either the true church or there's the false church. That's it. There's one option, two, true or false, black or white, and if you're not with me, you're against me. And so Luther could be very cruel. Once the Catholic church, he felt really uh, rejected the gospel and really rejected the truth of scripture, then man, he, he was done with them. Okay, then he was cruel and uh, probably could have tempered some of what he said and had a different reaction from some of those in leadership, but he was never going to do that. He just wasn't. And um, he even got into fights with some of the other reformers when they disagreed with him and caused a division that, I mean, let's be honest, still happens in Protestant churches today, right? There's still, I don't know how many Presbyterian denominations, I don't know how many Methodist denominations. There's a ton of us. Why? Because it's kind of in the nature of the movement. If I don't like you, I'm going somewhere else. And you're not the true church anymore because we disagree. Um, So there's a flaw there. Luther was also very much like that with the Jewish people. And uh, this is the big sort of dark mark on, on Luther's life that uh, he comes from a time in Germany with some very high anti-Semitism and he sees the Jews very much as part of this untrue church that killed Jesus and that have lied about. This is his most controversial book, um, The Jews and Their Lies by Martin Luther. Uh, This is really hard to read. It's really difficult. I think it's much more for Luther about them being the false church than really some kind of ethnic thing, but it's not good. And in fact, some of the early renditions of this book say the Jews and their filthy laws. Let me read. This is Luther's words. Okay? We, we have to be fair in dealing with him. He was not perfect. Therefore, be on guard against the Jews and know that they have, that where they have their schools, there is nothing but the devil's nest in which self-praise, vanity, lies, blasphemy, disgracing God and man, and practicing in the bitterest and most poisonous way of the devils do themselves. Luther, okay? There's another quote. Therefore, deal with them partially, as they do nothing but excruciatingly blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ, try to rob us of our lives, our health, our honor, and belongings. This is, right? So it, Luther's definitely not perfect. And for him to have set some anti-Semitism or strengthened or emboldened it in the movement, we now can look back on history and say, well... How, how did anti-Semitism in Germany go in a couple hundred years after that? Um, we have the Holocaust, and we have these atrocious things that happen. Um, Luther was not perfect, but we, and we need to be fair and acknowledge that. But the point isn't that he was perfect. The point isn't that he was great. He had mistakes and he had flaws and he was also a man of his times. And we have to be fair and honest when we look back at people in history to say, we we can't expect somebody 500 years ago to think like we think today. They just can't do that. The point is not that Luther was perfect, but that God used him. That God used him, that he set up a world in which Luther's spark would ignite something wonderful and important. That God used him and that that Luther, flawed though he was, was very faithful to that calling. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 5, and 9. The Corinthians are arguing because some people say that they follow Paul, who 
started the church. And then after Paul started the church, they had this really dynamic leader named Apollos that came along. And some people are saying, but we follow Apollos because he's better than Paul. And some people say, well, we follow Jesus. There's all this division about who the leaders are in the church. And here's what Paul says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And here's what I love. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. It's not... I don't want to preach this sermon and give all this glory to Martin Luther. He wasn't a perfect guy. But look how God used him. Look how God orchestrated things in his life so that he can have an impact. So that he not only has this great field of people in his lifetime that are changed because of his life, but he has you and me that 500 years later are really wrestling with some of the same questions that he has. And we live in a time that needs another reformation in the church. We need to pray that God brings that growth. That we may show a dying world the love and sacrifice of Jesus. And I pray that, that the leadership of Martin Luther would inspire us to be faithful to that calling. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for the leadership of Martin Luther that though he was not perfect, you used him. Lord, we are not perfect. Use us. Amen.